Welcome to The Legal Tea, the podcast we interview lawyers bring beyond corporate law. Each week you'll hear about their practice area, the work they do, and the roads they've taken to get there. I'm your host, Max Herberg. episode, you may have remembered I asked listeners to send in the most hated legal subject along with the reason why. Well, fortunately, you've had some quite interesting responses and I'd like to share some of my favorites. First up from Tom underscore me, who says, Jurisprudence. If I'd wanted to study philosophy, I'd have studied philosophy. Fair play, sir. When I studied Juris, I was astounded as to how one could spend all their lives debating and meandering over the moral obligation to obey a red traffic light. If the law says don't pass a red traffic light, then don't pass it. Case closed. Following up, JC231097. God, this man's got as many digits in his username, it might as well be half his phone number. Well, JC says EU law. He said it was so boring, I came this close to regretting my decision to remain. Well, given how the UK teaches EU law as nothing but doom and gloom, it's astounding how anybody could leave that course with a positive mindset. And finally, possibly my favourite to be honest, J underscore Hall 98 says equity, a minefield of confusion and sleepless nights. Well, J Horn, you're preaching to the choir, my friend. The only time I ever want to see the words trust again is when it's followed by the word fund and it turns out I'm the sole beneficiary. Anyways, on to matters of this week. How's everyone's week doing? Everything all right? Well, for me, the other week I went on a holiday to the Azores, and it was one of the first times I went flying since the start of this pandemic. And I was blown away when I found out that my flight ticket included not only free checked-in luggage, but also a two-carry-on bag policy. Better yet, the flights were virtually empty, which gave me plenty of space to just spread my legs, push the airline seat backwards, and relax. It was amazing. You know, this might seem quite petty, but I'd been so used to the scavenger of Ryanair and EasyJet lifestyle of hunking everything down into one small backpack and being headed onto the plane like cattle or squished together for the entire journey. I forgot what it was actually like to take a flight and be treated like a human being. And I thought, could this be the future of flying? Well, fortunately, here on this week's Legal Tea to give us the answer on just that, as well as all things aviation, is Ali Aga, a law graduate from the University of York and former aviation consultant and analyst at Helios. In this episode, we discuss the regulatory diversity and excitement behind the aviation industry, especially in a post-pandemic world, the difference between the solicitor and consultant life, and finally, the importance of capitalizing on your niche in order to stand out as a candidate in the consultancy world. So, Sit back, relax, brew yourself a cuppa, and please enjoy the show. Right. Hi, Ali. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm okay. Thank you for having me on. Now, obviously, Ali, we've talked before, but, you know, for the audience uh, listening in, why don't you tell them a bit about yourself? 
I'm Ali, obviously, um, and I studied law at University of York. At first, I wanted to become a lawyer, but throughout university, I realized I have more of an interest in the business side of things. So I've moved on to consultancy, and I was a consultant at Helios in aviation, looking at procurement, especially through air traffic management, and also supporting the European Union with implementing single European sky legislations which is an initiative to bring together all the European countries and harmonize their airspace. Fantastic. So why don't we kind of start off, you know, with why, why did you want to study law? Um, I've always had a, quite a fascination with these systems and institutions that act as pillars to our society. You know, laws are essentially words on paper, but they have huge influence from how we run nations to whether you go to your neighbor's back garden to get your football. So I always really enjoyed this thing that is a concept we just made up and it dictates a lot of aspects of everyday life. And I wanted to study it. I mean, that's so true. I mean, the law regulates every aspect of our lives. I think I was looking at an article the other day and there was God knows how many European regulations on the types of pillows we have. So definitely interesting. So why, you know, at at what point during your law degree did you find that the legal profession wasn't for you? At what point did you decide consultancy would be a better avenue? Um, I don't think it was that I didn't think legal profession was for me. But in my second year, I did a course called Law and the Business Environment, which was about consulting hypothetical law firm in a case study about the business aspects of running a law firm. And I realized I really, really enjoyed developing a business plan and marketing strategy and so on. So I decided to probe into the consulting areas and joined a society at University of York called York Community Consulting. They're incredible people. They set you up in a team to consult an actual business. So for me, it was a PR company for independent games. And while working for them, I realized this is really exciting. Um, I had contact with a lot of great consultants at EY and Deloitte. And I realized it's more what I wanted than being a lawyer. It was a lot of the same skills, the professionalism, the analytical skills and so on. But the business environment was quite dynamic and more attractive to me. Fantastic. And and just on that side of, you know, the business side of things, if we kind of compare a solicitor and a consultant, you said that they kind of do the same skills or use the same skills, but they also differ. So in what way, as a consultant at Helios, what was your day-to-day job like? Um, well, I think they're similar jobs because at their core, you have a client that has a problem or wants to get somewhere, but doesn't know how to. And you analyze the information that you know and information that you've researched to get them there. So my work at Helios, part of it was coordinating various national supervisory authorities on how to best implement uh, legislations. So I think their problem partly was that communication needed to be arranged well and writing technical papers to just bring all of that together gave them a single source to work on. That was quite different. 
But the areas that I worked at that was quite similar to law was procurement, where I had on two different projects, essentially very similar projects, where air navigation service providers needed to procure a lot of different expensive equipment, for example, med data machinery. So my job was to work with my team to find out what the systems best apply to their conditions and also make sure that I don't close competition for whoever wants to bid for the job. So balancing those two and also because their systems were being bought by EBRD money, uh, which is an international bank, they also had to be compliant with their rules. So just balancing all these things together, there was law involved because of the EBRD aspect, but also the competition side of it, which is somewhat law mixed with business. And also the business side of it, which is quite a completely different side where you look at the budgeting, you look at the timeline for a project, how it could be managed and so on. So all those steps where, you know, law in terms of regulations, very similar to what solicitor does, but you can step down to the nitty gritty in terms of pricing, budgeting and so on, which is the business aspect, which was very different. I don't know about you, but I didn't really work with numbers on most of my courses. No, I left my numbers and all my math courses in sixth form. So definitely in the law, it was all letters for me. But it's quite interesting, as you say, that you you still deal with the law, but you immerse yourself so much more into the industry. You look at pricing, marketing, logistical supply chains. So about that kind of, you know, immersion into the industry, you said that, you know, you worked at Helios, which is an aviation consulting company. Was there a particular reason why aviation? Um, To be honest, I never considered aviation specifically until I found Helios. And then I looked into it. Obviously, there's like a a month process between when you first find the job and when you get the job. And throughout that period, I was just reading and reading more about aviation and liking it more and more. And the biggest interesting fact for me was the European aspect of it. The fact that airspace is split between nations and is an industry where it's highly regulated, in some regions highly nationalised, but at least in Europe and in the UK, we're trying to break down the nationalisation, introduce competition, and not deregulate, but as allow new starters to come into the market without too much regulatory burden. So it's a slow moving industry, but at the same time, if you're working as a consultant at the cutting edge, let's say, um, there is quite a lot of exciting stuff going on, including space using satellites for navigation. We're used to using our GPS, but most planes don't have GPS on them. Um, So what do they use instead? um, Depends. I'd say um, the most common way you navigate is probably just communicating with a navigation system providers. And you can also use systems like ILS, where you essentially triangulate between certain points where they've put machinery that sends out a signal to to the plane and the plane sends out a signal back. And that's how you know whereabouts the plane or whereabouts the airport is. It's a lot of the systems are from like the 60s and quite old stuff. 
Yeah, that's how it's scary. I mean, one thing is driving a car, but the other thing is, you know, driving a plane at God knows how many feet or meters up in the air with, I don't know, 150 passengers and we don't even have GPS. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, so it's a lot of, it's too much responsibility. But, you know, just on that point about the opportunities and all these exciting things that are happening in the aviation, I mean, you know, even if we look at today in a COVID world, but also in a, in a world climate change, what moves are being done in aviation? We look at the BBC or the reports nowadays and we hear about all these airlines going bust or having to lose thousands of jobs. So it seems like quite a bleak picture for aviation. So what's your take on the whole situation? I think COVID's definitely hit aviation quite hard. And I see all these comments here and there about how a silver lining of COVID is that we fly less, so there is less pollution as well. So it's the, there's the climate change pressures of it. In terms of climate change, aviation's tried really are trying really hard to reduce pollution, but at the end of the day you're flying a plane that needs fuel and until electric planes come into place, which I don't think will happen within the next 30, 40 years for big passenger planes anyway. I think the climate change pressures will mount on aviation. But in terms of COVID, it's shown uh, it's not the first crisis aviation's had. Every time there's a war in a region, you have to divert planes. But airlines operate in such a small margin of profit that, of course, 70% 70% drop in uh, passengers will have a huge impact. I think aviation will recover. Eventually people, I mean, especially if we have, a, hopefully we have a vaccine and the vaccine will have people actually start traveling. But I think until then we'll see recoveries on targets and then little panics every time there is a, you know, Spain just went back in the list for the UK for 14 days quarantine if you come back. And tourists have already started panicking about the second wave and so on. So I think we'll have dips, but within the next maybe four, maybe five years, we'll recover to the same amount of traffic as 2019, which is a long time, to be fair, but we'll get there. And do you see kind of, you know, the aviation industry learning from this COVID experience moving forward? I mean, one thing is obviously, what's the road to recovery? But do you see any any lessons learned from the aviation industry as a whole? Absolutely, I do. There is stuff left, right and centre, people releasing blogs and white papers and so on. There is a lot of discussion going on in aviation, especially in terms of resilience. You know, are we so resilient if within one month so many airlines go bust, if passengers drop there's a lot of discussion in different areas about it. And hopefully we learn a lot about this stuff. I mean, at the end of the day, you can't do that much if demand drops that sharply. But I think everyone's thinking about it and we'll learn something. And, you know, just going back to, to obviously these opportunities and, and these changes in the market. When we last spoke, you, you talked about the work that you were doing at Helios, on the one hand, you were dealing with all the procurement and and the business side of things, but you also had a chance to tackle some issues on climate change. Was that right? Yeah. I've always been interested in climate change. One of the reasons I didn't mention earlier on was that aviation was quite an interesting area for me because the pollution is so high and I've always wanted to have a positive impact in terms of climate change. And if you can reduce aviation's pollution by 1%, that's tons and tons of carbon taken out of the air. 
so I, I was always interested in driving my not my so much my career but driving positive impacts in that direction and I got a really good chance when we had to bid for a climate change study at Eurocontrol which is a bigger than European wide organization they have a paper released every four days called challenges of growth and one of the main driving forces right now is climate change but we haven't quantified what the impacts of it will be um, european wide so for example how many airports might need to prepare for sea level rise to actually affect the runways let's say you know london city heathrow are close enough to bodies of water that that might actually be a big factor and you know temperature rises can affects how planes can take off you need a longer runway for a plane to actually be able to lift off with the same weight how many airlines need to extend their, their runways and all other aspects like tourists might not want to go to warmer countries as much maybe sunbathing isn't as popular in the future who knows <laughs> but to quantify that study we actually had to write a bid and i actually had the pleasure of reading through loads of material about the impacts climate change will have. And we wrote the bid, we, we won it in the end, uh, which was great news. But I wanted to carry on in that direction. So I wrote a blog on the Helios website about encouraging uh, stakeholders in the industry to think about climate change, think about how much they need to do to adapt to the future. And that's everyone in the industry, including, for example, say EBRD can have a role in financing a lot of these projects because I can't remember the percentage, but quite a high percentage of stakeholders that can't prepare for climate change is because they don't have financing for it. But, you know, today, I think the last report said that only 8% of stakeholders think they're ready for climate change and something like 52% think they've already been affected by climate change. For example, Heathrow's winter 2010, I don't know if you remember, but Heathrow just had to shut down for a day or two, which was huge considering Heathrow's got a huge, huge chunk of the UK aviation market. So... Yeah, I did that. Uh, and from there on, it was easier to get work in that area to prepare for climate change. I even uh, partnered with ACI Europe, encouraging people to not pull investment from you know, climate change and actually to pour more resources into it now that people were free because of COVID to really push on with the climate change resilience planning um, yeah, that, that, that sounds amazing, especially the fact that you were able to pursue this passion at Helios and as well just hearing also the whole business side behind climate change and all these fascinating statistics. Now, did you feel coming, I mean, obviously Helios is a consultancy that specializes in aviation. Did you find any benefits in working at a consultancy like Helios as opposed to, say, working in a, in a big four consultancy like Deloitte or EY? Do you think there's a difference or if somebody in your position was choosing between going for a more small consulting firm as opposed to a large multinational. What would you say to them? Um, I think it depends on the person. Some people probably would love the big four consulting firm where you have so many different areas to specialize in or not specialize in. But I quite enjoyed the fact that there was like 75 people, I think, in my office. 
So it was really easy to actually know everyone. And when I had a problem, I could immediately think, okay, this person's got 20 years of experience. This person knows this, this person knows that. So the personal connection I had with my colleagues was very important to me and very enjoyable. Whereas I think it's next to impossible in a big four consultancy firms to actually know everyone. You know a lot of people, of course, but not everyone. And it might be harder to approach different people you might have to go through hoops of trying to get even a meeting with them or an email read. I, I think that was quite a big aspect. And I don't think we did smaller work than Big Four. So, for example, one of the main things that attracted me to the Big Four back when I was thinking the pros and cons of the different sized businesses was that the big four probably have bigger work to do in terms of how impactful they are. But there are a lot of smaller consultancies out there that do very important work and are involved in huge projects. And that's because in consultancy, it's your name that sells the bid once you have the level of experience, of course. So you can meet incredible people, incredibly skilled people that do incredible work at smaller consultancies. But for me, it came to the personal connections. And did you find that being at a smaller consultancy, you could see a more direct impact of your work? We talked about obviously the levels of bureaucracy and just big organization is just a lot more procedural. But you were saying you still got some amazing work at a smaller consultancy. Do you think that the smaller size or the less hierarchical nature of these smaller consultancies allowed you to have a more direct role in the positive change of the business work that you guys were producing? Definitely. Helios had quite a flat hierarchy. You know, most of the directors were sat in the same room as I was. Uh, so a lot of the time they just walk past, see what I'm doing and say, oh, you could speak to this person or you can write this. And they really helps my work. As I said, I had quite a lot of impact at Helios, but I think that that is partly because of the size of the business, but also because of the culture. They were very supportive and I had the initiative to shape my own career, which helped me get into the climate change side of things. And as you said, I, had, I think I could quite easily show the impact that I had. But at the same time, there were the directors, the consultants, the senior consultants, everyone who checked my work and advised me on what areas to look at and how to improve my work. So th there was some bureaucracy, I would say, but nothing that made me think, oh, what do I have to do this? I never had to fill up a form to have my work read or to write a blog, for example. I never went through any hoops. They just said, these are our guidelines. You can write it, get someone to check it. We're good to go. Yeah, that sounds quite empowering, especially, you know, not having to go through all those procedural hoops. And also, as you were saying, just having partners, having senior level staff just approach you and say, oh, write a blog on this or give you projects, especially somebody who started, you know, kind of one year or two years, just starter level and already being given all these tasks. We've talked about what it's like working in a consultancy, a small level consultancy, your trip from why you want to do law and why you want to do consultancy. Now, thinking about some of our listeners who might want to jump into the consultancy world, what is that application process like? I mean, I'm sure you're quite familiar with the solicitor, law firm, corporate law firm application process and all the hoops and challenges that we've got to overcome for those. What is the process for consultancy? 
It's surprisingly varied. As you said, I was very familiar with how law firms hire people. Uh, there is no training contracts. There isn't two years ahead applications where you have to jump through all these hoops to get a training contract and then you study again. I would say it's two-sided, uh, one side being, you know, the big four style or some other consultancies as well, but mainly the big four that are similar enough to law in terms of online application tests, so on and so forth. But I had to navigate it on my own and there wasn't a, a big book you could get in your law school where it listed all the law firms and the reviews of them um, which I don't know if you had, but I had that. Yeah, we had we had law firms and we had big thick books with every every law firm name A to Z yeah. and their application process detailed to a dot. Yeah, there wasn't anything like that I found, or if there is, I didn't find it. So I had to first. I went to my careers advisors at university, and they had a little thin book with like three pages that said, this is what consultants are looking for. These are the skills. And all the names were EY, Deloitte, KPMG, PwC. And you just see those and you think maybe they're the only options, but they're not. Because a lot of consultancies are smaller, it's harder to find them in the first place. So my advice would be just to search on and on. Um, it's There is quite a variety on what a consultant or one analyst does. And there's quite varying degrees of specialism where firms uh, go into. For example, Helios in aviation, that's quite niche, but you can find other firms that don't specialize and they're not that huge as in terms of like, you know, the big four. So I'd say just search on, use as many avenues as possible. That's so true. I mean, you think about these big four and they've got grand marketing budgets or graduate recruitment budgets. They can afford to go to every university in the country or in the world and and promote themselves. Whereas I guess niche consultancies don't have that. Yeah. Thinking about, you know, we've just spoken that the role of a consultant is so open-ended and, you know, it can vary depending on the type of industry, the type of firm that you're at. What do you say to a second year law student or third year law student, even first year law student that knows they want to be a consultant? but doesn't know what skills they should develop or, you know, where they should be looking. Looking back at your journey, what are things that you think played a major role in landing where you got today? Or you think, if I got to do it all over again, what are the skills that you wish you'd develop early on? That's a very interesting question. I think the skills that I wished I developed would have been more technical skills, like working with data and so on and so forth. I I don't think you get to do that a lot with a law degree. Of course, I did with the business development course, but even that wasn't that much. I'd say go out and find the professional societies at your university. To this day, a lot of what I learned and what I use are from my experience at your community consulting, where we consulted a firm. But also you can find a lot of free courses online, like Coursera, where you can learn data analytics and Excel from PwC partners, which is incredibly helpful. We'll develop other technical skills like that. For example, Power BI, Excel, Tableau, all this applications used for data analytics a lot in consulting and 
want analyst jobs. But while I wish I'd developed them more, it's more because of just interest in my career. Uh, as a consultant, you get to shape your own career. And I wanted to understand data and work with data better. But I think as a law student, the legal skills we develop are hugely important. And my advice would be to really sell those skills. Analytical thinking, understanding laws, these are skills that are hugely important in a business environment. I read a quote the other day that said, management consulting firms love the way law students think, but they just love the way business school students know. So I think to sell yourself, sell all the skills we developed as law students and show a really keen interest in learning about business and learning quickly about it. You know, in aviation, I had next to no knowledge when I went to my interview uh, in comparison to what I know now. But I think I really showed that I have an analytical mind. I can work through problems step by step methodically, which are all legal skills. But at the same time, I, I think I showed that I was keen to learn about aviation and I could catch up quickly. So, yeah, I'd say I'd leave with that quote consultants love the way law students think, but they love what business school students know. That's, that's a fantastic quote. I guess as law students, we've got to become the best of both worlds in order to kick ass in consultancy. All right. So just now, fun round question, typical law student question that every, every person goes into law school thinking, what's your favorite character on Suits? <laughs> uh, Donna. Easy. Donna. How, co- how come? Uh, well, I did a fin- I, I'm not up to date on the series, probably like the first three or four, but she, she just seems to know what to do every time. She is the master, the ruler, the keeper of the law firm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ali, for taking the time. If any listeners want to reach out to you, what's the best way they can contact you? Um, probably on my LinkedIn, just Ali Alka. Uh, search for that and hopefully you'll find the fingers crossed fantastic all right thank you so much ali thank you now personally i've always been a lewis lit fan he's not the biggest charm definitely not the best looks of the show but you just got to love him for his quick whips and vastly knowledge but then again i'm just glad ali just didn't go for the generic harvey specter answer so i appreciate his choice as well as well as his thought process behind it well there you have it, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Special thanks to our unsung heroes, Claire Herberg for editing and producing the episode, Andrew Waddell for scripting the show notes and blog posts, and Matt Getrich for the absolute bang of a theme song. If you enjoy the show, spread the word. Tell your friends, your classmates, your partners, your parents, hell, even your grandparents about Legal Tea. This brew is just too good to be left unshared this Christmas. You can also share the love by being sure to subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice. And be sure to follow us on our Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram social media channels at legalt.uk for news of the latest episodes and more. Till next time. Mm-hmm.